Welcome to Your Property Podcast, brought to you by Your Property Network magazine. I'm Ant Lyons. And I'm Encara Dewin. Welcome to our podcast. It's all about property investing and developing and how to make money out of property. So, Angharad, can you tell our listeners what it is we're going to be covering? Well, if you're like us and very nosy, we are going to be asking the questions to professional property investors and developers to find out exactly what they're doing to make money out of property. Okay, so whether you're not, whether you're the start of your property journey or you're growing your property business, this is the property podcast for you. We talk to all sorts of different property professionals, investors, developers, look at the different strategies that they're covering, the pros, the cons, uh, what's working and, and what's not, um, to bring you live case studies from real life investors and developers. So we ask the questions that maybe would be on your mind and maybe some of the ones that you wouldn't necessarily think to ask so uh, we hope you enjoy our podcast if you do don't forget to visit our web page so you can get uh, a download of the article that we create um, from the podcast so all the case study pictures all the financial details all those kind of things and loads of other useful stuff so and Harrod, can you give the link to our listeners sure it's www.yourpropertynetwork.co.uk forward slash stuff Today we're talking new build developments and making the transition from being uh, an investor into, uh, I guess, new build developments, uh, building from the from the ground out, um, and why you would look to do that, the challenges in doing it, and the opportunities as well, of course. And I'm actually joined by a, an old friend of mine and no stranger to the pages of YPN, although it's been far too long since I caught up with him, so <laughs> hopefully... He can both see and hear me on this newfangled bit of kit we're using to record this today. So, um, Carl Spencer, it's a pleasure to have you back. Absolutely. You're more welcome. Yeah, good to be on here. Yeah. So, we... Oh, I, I better not let her... her um, <laughs> I was going to say, uh, bit rude. <laughs> unintroduced as she is there. So, um, the, 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 I could have said the elephant in the corner, but I won't. So, um, <laughs> oh, charming. So, Ang Harrido in my co-host... On the podcast is here. She's here. Can <laughs> we shut up? Although she's obviously far too late after those previous comments. So, um, so Harry, uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Okay, so Carl, when did we last spoke? And neither of us can remember quite when it was. It seems like a lifetime ago. Maybe three or four years, some, yeah. something like that. Yeah. You were. Um, you're kind of building an empire at that point, but more on the sort of rental side of things, building up, a, um, you're doing a lot of kind of rent to rent stuff and buy to let stuff and building up um, a, a multi-let portfolio in different shapes and forms for the, and I use it very much in inverted commas, the passive income, um, because uh, how passive is it? Sometimes? Yeah, it wasn't very passive. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, I'm really interested because actually I think, I think there's a genuine sort of evolution of a property investor really. Mm-hmm. And that we, you know, me, like you, I came into it through sort of buy to let. And then mm-hmm. as you do more, you feel more comfortable sort of stretching the boundaries a bit. So before we go into it too much, give us an overview of kind of your business now and then we'll rewind and find out how you got there so what what do you do now so what i do now is um yeah it's been a heck of a journey but I, I, and i'm looking forward to this interview because actually 
it makes sense of it yourself, doesn't it? When you try to recollect it back sometimes, you know, you're just doing the thing, but you need to sort of recollect and, and see how all the, the dots join up. But um, what I'm doing now is I, myself, Kenny and Ben, there's three of us that own a company called Broadwing or Broadwing Homes. And what that is, is a property development company that buys land or in effect, it welcomes in private investment money into the company. Then Broadwing then buys plots of land, predominantly not, not commercial, but land we prefer new build than, than doing conversions, just as a preference. And then we get the properties built and then we obviously sell them, ideally of plan, not always the case, but ideally, and then sell them at the end. And of course our exit generally right now is buy to sell. So we're not holding any stock. Um, we tend to prefer to buy separate investment stock with the money that we make, blocks of apartments and things in a separate uh, entity. We'll talk about that separately. Um, so that's Broadwing. We do it in various locations. So we buy a plot. The, 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 predominantly our model is anything that's between four and say 14 units. We feel that it's kind of that gray space between it's too big for the small developers, but way too small for the big. So we felt that that was a, not a nice little niche. I'm in Peterborough based and Ben, one of my business partners is based in, um, in London and the Greenwich. And then Kenny is also based in Peterborough. So we've got a fairly varied uh, knowledge and leverage knowledge of those two locations. So we're doing developments in both of those locations and a few in between. Um, and they range anything from six to seven sort of stone built houses, four or five bedders up to 23, 29 apartments, but they're taught of anything from um, uh, you know, two, one and two bedrooms essentially, but uh, one, one is we currently got a, a plot that, by the way, this one may not happen, but essentially we've got the offer accepted, so there's a few dots to, 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 to join up as we all know with this stuff. But it's a, a new cross, an eight story building to build 26 apartments, that'll be our by far biggest, but it's right next to the railway line, so of course there's a whole national rail element to that, which of course is new to us. Um, so yeah, that's kind of Broadwing, and then uh, which we're really keen to. We're doing multiple projects, so this year we're set to do six, maybe eight developments uh, over this year that will be live. So moving into next year, so that's anywhere I think it's about 70, 80 units, something like that across the across the, the, the six or seven. And then we've got Land Resi, which is a separate arm to what we do. And what Land Resi is is a is a I hate to use the term sourcing. I think sourcing is overused. Um, I think sourcing is can be lazy knowledge to very experienced understanding of how this stuff works. Um, so let's put it into a consultancy bracket. So it's more of a consultancy firm that, that find land that enables it to become ready, either on a subject to planning basis or some are non-conditional, depending on how the risk profile of the individual. But essentially they're all they've got that security of planning or subject to planning. And then we, in effect, sell them, package them and sell them on to other developers. But we understand, of course, the start to finish process. So that's the separate business. Um, but that's what we do now. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about moving into, um, I'm really interested to sort of find out about how you will work in the team now and who does what, because sometimes I think that's interesting, but we'll, we'll, we'll move on to that later on. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> Your your first sort of movement into development, new build development from you know when we spoke a few years ago, you know how did that come about and, and why did it come about and why did you kind of make the decision to switch from what you were doing previously? Well, there's two two main reasons. One was interest, and then number two was 
I found, and this is not knocking at all service accommodation or rent to rent or HMOs by any stretch, but we were, I had a previous business partner at the time, but that's no longer the case now. We just went our separate ways and we went our separate directions. But at the time, um, we were seeing the service accommodation and rent to rent, but there was kind of an ever diminishing return. It was becoming more difficult to outplay the competition. You know, more, it's just inevitable. If there's something that's an easier point of entry, or a lower cost to entry, of course, more people can do it. Now, we all know that not that many do do it. You know, you have a thousand people that do a course, you might have only a handful or so that actually do end up going to really do it on any form of scale, which is perfectly okay, and some give it a go and give up. And of course, that's generally how we all work and operate in whatever strategy we use. Um, and I've read a brilliant book by Peter Thiel, uh, Zero to One, and that kind of really hit the nail on the head for me, and that was, where you know, obviously PayPal, he was the co-founder of PayPal along with Elon Musk and they essentially what, what he felt was important was that to have a business or do something that has the least amount of competition. One, you can create the greatest value, you get paid more for your efforts, but there's a greater risk and it can take longer and so on. So of course that for me was kind of hit the nail on the head that we could have two flats in the same block doing service accommodation and if someone, you can put gold leaf on his on your quilts, but it's not going to make any difference. They charge 50 quid less a night, they're going to get the booking. So I found that was a diminishing market, not everywhere, but I get it that that, that was, I'm talking long-term. Mm. And what zero to one sort of taught me was think long-term, think 10, 15 years, don't just think it's an opportunity to make some money for the next six months to a year. So that's the route that I chose. Um, and not only that, but at the time I was doing life coaching. So it wasn't, I need to learn and go to a course. And again, I'm not knocking that. I've had a real love-hate relationship with education, I have to say, personally and everything else. But um, and it's not knocking either, but that's just, just from a personal perspective. And I kind of felt that um, rather than go and do some courses on a specific uh, uh, strategy, get some life coaching underneath me like forgive the pun but a good foundation so if i've got a good i deserve i understand i think bigger um it's not just me alone here who can i welcome into carl's world to make this kind of stuff happen that was more much more of a life coach foundation as opposed to i don't know buy and rent or mm. what, what, what kind of you know JP. So, so how do you go about bridging the knowledge gap then um <clears throat> because yeah, I'm absolutely, I, I totally agree that you know you, you need the, the mindset. You know that's got to be there. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how much you know. Yeah, but there's it, practical element. Yeah, yeah. There's the there's the sort of you know well how much does a you know how much does it cost per square meter to build this and how do I cost this thing out and how do I manage a, a build and all that sort of stuff. So how did you bridge the knowledge gap or did you bring external resources in to to do that? Yeah, that was. Um, yeah, I couldn't wait to talk about this bit because I just feel it's, it's uh, for me, it was such a good way to get into, into development. And the way I did it was no different to what I did before. When I was doing rent to rent, I, we were finding properties ourselves and we rent to rent ourselves. Obviously, we had the direct relationship with the landowner. You commit the rent and, of course, you fill the rooms. Then when we were doing HMOs, we were doing HMO portfolio buildings. We are finding a property that we got paid a fee to convert into a HMO. And then we managed it. And of course, one business was feeding the other. And that was kind of like a natural evolution. 
but essentially we were finding sites for somebody else and somebody else was getting the mortgage somebody else's it was in somebody else's name the debt so although we weren't gaining from any form of the of the equity over that term and had no real control over the site it was a really good way of understanding how you convert a property into a hmo without actually risking this yourself so that's and i followed the same model and principle into uh, into development so what i did is i just started doing some viewing this basically and i have to say this is my first one so i i viewed a a property in peterborough and anyone that knows anything about peterborough knows that there's a relatively well-known company in peterborough that that do a lot of conversions and development so to, to say that least competition was pretty rife in in peterborough and still is and of course was way before that also you know um and i saw this building and it's a three-story building a office on the ground floor and then an office so two first two floors of office and the top was a three-bed apartment and i viewed it thinking i could convert this into flats surely this makes a bit of sense but i had absolutely no idea whether there's a minimum square foot i didn't even understand the term square foot to be fair value or, 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 or cost that was just not something in my vocabulary i had no idea what whether there's a minimum flat size, I have no idea. I could kind of see I could get, you know, 18 HMO rooms out of this building. This was something that kind of resonated, but it just felt like this could be a block of flats. I was being sold by the agent that this could be a block of flats and it could be PD. So for those that don't know that listen to this obviously committed development, it rights to convert without getting planning. And those that have done that know that that isn't quite always the case and um you know it's not always straight easy it comes to conservation area and the top floor was resilient anyway and of course that needed full planning anyway it needed full planning in the, in the end but the time i viewed it i was physically in there pretty uncomfortable turning up in a pretty crappy car and and i was thinking no one's going to take me particularly serious and but the agent kind is a commercial agent and anyone that's dealt with commercial agents before are slightly different animals <laughs> to estate agents there's a bit more egos involved and of course they're trying to assess you whether you're a waste of time and, and all of that was going on. I think he just felt a bit sorry for me, thinking, Carl, do you want me to say what I think? And I've gone, that's a great idea. So of course he's telling me, so of course he's telling me he thinks he can get this into six flats. And I'm sort of saying, oh, that's, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. And of course I'm really winging it. And he kind of said, I'll leave you to it, shall I? And I said, that, that'd be great, yeah. So, of course, he's gone out. And literally, I'm just kicking the skirting board. It's the only way I can describe it. You know, I've got absolutely no idea. And I've walked out there thinking, there's something here, but I can't quite get my head around it. So, I automatically, I do with everything. I viewed that, I think, on the Monday or Tuesday, whenever it was. I spent the rest of the week trying to speak to those that, on Facebook, like we all do if we're trying to get started and reaching out to those that are perceived to be, sorry, one perceived and some that are mm. actual experts in the field on, on Facebook. What do you think? Is this worthwhile? What do you think we could do? Here's the square footage, just where it is. There's all the kind of the background stuff that I would do as a HMO, let alone with a commercial to resi. Spoke to 10 different people and all 10 said, don't touch it with a barge pole. So that was my initial sort of learning going not sure if this is <laughs> this is right one no one's touching it and this is not really going anywhere and i said oh, i kind of disagree with them all <laughs> so i got so i um i met this guy a guy called martin who is a fantastic bloke and i've actually gone on to do more projects with martin since 
such a lovely guy. He'd never done development before, really wanted to get into development. And I said, look, there's an opportunity here. How about we maybe do this together? I found it. Um, maybe we do a bit of an equity share or profit share, perhaps. Don't pay me a fee. And I'll be involved. I'm based in Peterborough. You're not. There's a leverage to my time. At the time, we were bringing in some income from HMO. So albeit that was my ability to be able to do it, essentially. But if I had a full-time job, I'd have done the same thing. Depends on where you get your cash flow from. For me, it was the rent-to-rent -rent business that somebody else could be getting it from a full-time job. It wasn't a full-time role. But we've all, got to pay, we've all got to pay the bills, haven't we? Pay the bills. You've got to be practical, yeah. And, and, um, and I always say this about people that don't leave, if you want to go into development, don't perhaps go and do rent-to-rent. -rent. You can fast-forward straight into development. Just If your cash flow thing is coming from over here, then stick with that because it will take your headache away a bit in the meantime. But it just so happens that my vacation was rent-to-rent. -rent. So, of course, that enabled me to do this development with Martin and he took it on and to probably both of our surprise uh, we converted it to nine apartments we bought it for 415 and sold it for it cost 230,000 to convert and sold for 1.1 and it all happened within nine months and we sold it to one buyer coming and took the whole thing. Wow. Wow. And, How did you uh, structure the deal between uh, yourself and Martin? How was the deal structured? Yeah, so did one of you put in the funds or? Uh, yeah, no, no problem. So basically, it was Martin's project, all of Martin's money. He put in the money to do it, and I had a 30% profit share. Okay, fantastic. And so, and how, did you, how did you get the bill done when you, you know, you, you, you sort of say you stood in it, you, you know, literally kind of kicking the skirting poles to see if any fall off? You know, how did you go about? managing a build team would you bring in bring an external contractor to to, to do that and and take the headache away because i don't know i've you know done a few developments and it can be quite um i'm always amazed that it's not particularly collaborative with the builder it can be banging heads a bit we completely lucked out i can't so many people have said that and um i can i've just been so blessed with, with i'm not just saying it but some people have had that i've spoken to uh, say over the last two or three years, some of them had absolute nightmares of building contractors, you know, um, and they'll swear by just JCT contracts, which is a fixed, obviously fixed term, fixed price contract with uh, penalties that, that go over that. And uh, I never had any, we never had any of that with, with Phil. He was, he is brilliant. He's now doing a six build project with us and just moving on to a 10 house project with us. So we had to have that serious conversation with Phil to say, did he want to stay in? And if that's the case, what, what resources do you require? And so of course you're building this kind of mini economy, but at the time, did he want to do it? We'd worked with, with Phil before on five different HMO conversions, and he was brilliant. He always came on a budget, really trustworthy, got really good trades. So for us, it was the same thing, but just on a slightly different scale. Uh, obviously, the bank had to be comfortable with that. That's, that's a, the next tick box. The bank have got to be comfortable with the team, which they were. And um, we just really lucked out. Honestly, he was brilliant and uh, helped helped us through it. He learned and grew through the through the development as well. That could have come with problems, obviously. You know, it's very tempting to go with much more of an established building company that you, in effect, you're not having to learn the mistakes. They've already learned the mistakes, but of course, they're charging you for for that per for, the, for that privilege. But if you're if you can grow with a building firm, that was really more about who the person was rather than his experience, if you like. And mm. uh, we just lucked out. I thought, well, I can't really, um, yeah. Uh, That's the way it happens sometimes. Really lucky, yeah. Fortuitous. So, so where, do you, where do you, from 
your conversion project into um, new build because you know conversion projects are great, but you don't really know what you're dealing with until you take that Absolutely. building apart, as we spoke about off- offline earlier on. And so, you, whilst you might have a the budget is the budget is never set in stone on those types of projects. So, how do you make the transition from that to new build? And are there more or less unknowns when moving from conversion projects to the new build side of things? Yeah. Um, and so from a cost perspective, it's easier, I found. Yeah. That you can, you've got a, value per, a cost per square foot and a value per square foot. And unlike, if you haven't got to deal with things such as uh, precarious know, running sand or or you know, you need piles to be put into the ground, which are rather than your normal footings, you've got to go deeper and have the rods and things put in, um, access issues or service issues, things like that. But mainly when you're assessing them at the beginning, as you start to do a few more and start to assess them, all of those things can be ticked off before you even start to spend money. And, um, but initially, of course, you don't always know that. You're sort of finding that out of the way as you, as you enter each, basically each nightmare. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, one that we're doing in a minute for six hours, I'll talk about that a bit later, but we have experienced just about every possible nightmare you could throw a stick at, uh, but that's a, a whole new learning. Um, but the transition for me was not so much an opportunity, it was more kind of what I wanted to do. The, the flat conversion was great, but I don't know, for me, it didn't feel particularly exciting. It was, and don't forget, it was mainly Martin's development. I was help. I was the person that was there and feeding information back. Fundamentally, it's always going to be Martin's decision. Albeit he was brilliant with me, allowing me to, uh, he allowed me to name the building Broadway Place that will always be there forever in the day. And you know, just I couldn't be more more blessed to be working with brilliant people, which Martin is definitely one of. Um, yeah, so I think I did definitely learn from it, and that was the best way that I could, the best course ever in a million years, you know, that was the, uh, and in fact, I've found another one for Martin and Dave, uh, he actually, him and his best friend, uh, Dave, um, are building 14 houses in down the market at the moment, and I found that one for them, and, and they're building that project, so that was another one, so, uh, but that was done in a slightly different way, that's more of a fee base, rather than a, um, mm. uh, so, so your, your first foray, your first development, this, you know, Carl's development of, of new build stuff, tell us about that, and what was it, and how you found it, and, um, you know, how do you gain a bit of confidence talking to the, the commercial agents by that point? Well, um, by the time that, yeah, I found that one um, about, not, it, I found that one almost before the other one that finished, the, the flat conversion. So I sort of, because I was full-time in development, so of course I, I was only needed probably a couple of days a week perhaps or something, not even that, the, the commercial conversion sometimes wasn't there every week. So, Carl's struggling to fill his, fill his time. So what I was doing eight to 10 hours a day is understanding the foundations, what I need to be doing, how I need to be doing it, who do I need to be involved and what's the transition with new builds. I was probably viewing 10, 15 developments a week. I had no idea. I was just booking them in. I didn't quite know what I was looking for. How I found that one particularly is, again, I found a bit of a niche of not necessarily dealing with commercial agents. For me, dealing with let's call them more residential estate agents that wouldn't necessarily have a large black book of developers that they talk to meant that they don't really fully understand land value but they do come across these opportunities that for me was probably one of the biggest finds really 
because all of a sudden you might find five or six good estate agents that are really good go-getters. They're good with people, they're good communicators, but have no idea really how land value works. Or in all, in all truth, can't bother. They just want a quick commission. That's not what they're wired for. They want to get in and get out. And they want somebody else to take care of all the nightmare and six months of getting planning and all that. That's for them not, not interested. So this one particularly in Deep in St. James is a beautiful stone-built uh, village or lots of... Uh, listed buildings that you all know all about but for, uh, thankfully this wasn't one it was just a lorry yard you know that was all right um but uh yes that's fundamentally he he bought it he kind of said look there's an opportunity do you want to meet up with the garage owner that was next door car garage owner they have an option on a plot of land next door um and uh, would you be interested in in having a look so we went to go and view it and interestingly with that one around that one past 10 to 12 people and every, every single person said, don't touch it with the barge bar. So same thing again. So I thought they'd and, and they, At this point, are they giving any reasons behind it? Because I, I've definitely found when I've asked other people online mm. about their advice, they fall into one or two camps normally. Not everybody, but normally. There's the don't touch it with a barge pole, but it's not really quantified. There's the qualifying factor about that. Or there's go for it but with no qualification as to yes. that as well, because yeah. either way, it's not their money. Um, so, and there's, and there's a small, small number of people that give you a heads up, but ultimately the decision is yours. And yeah. there is I don't know, a gut feeling that leads you in the right, in the right direction, do you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, really, I think half of it was, when you're speaking to a lot of people that are looking at a lot of sites, they're looking for the perfect side of which doesn't really exist. There's always something with every single side. It always costs more money and it always takes longer. And I think that fundamentally, and there's almost more complication and it's never quite straightforward and there's always things like access issues or there might be a slight strip of land that internal drainage board pipe might be in that's just never registered. So therefore you're taking damage insurance and all these things, of course, no one really gets, gets into, but so I think a lot of it is if someone's coming from out of town, so someone from London really wants to do it, they want to do it. It was when you're finding a site for somebody else, that's fundamentally what my model was. Don't forget that this site that I found was I was going to do the same as what I've done in down the market, the same as what I've done in, in, uh, in Peterborough. I was going to find it, have a profit share or a fee and pass it on. So they're looking for this perfect site. And there's nothing against met some fantastic people, still friends to this day, but they're all saying, not for me, it's going to cost too much money for services. But I knew I had a really good relationship with the garage owner next door. I then met up with the owners of the land, sat down, we had coffee. We, you know, I, was, I suppose it was more maybe I'm at a different position to what they were. I was at the very eager, the naive place. And in some cases that can be dangerous, but in some cases it can be a really good place to be too. And I had the energy and the want and the bigger desire to, to want to create something where somebody else were looking, they've got the money in the bank, they're, they're in more of a comfortable position financially. So they're being a bit, their decision process was perhaps different to mine. So I was, that's the only way I can probably describe it. And at the time I went, this could be really cool. I think we can create something really good. Obviously it's not just my decision. I've got one this past an architect, happens to be a good friend of mine. So these, these aren't, just my decisions. I'm happy to go to experts to, to see what their thoughts are and what could be creative. Um, and also, I just like the idea of creating 
a beautiful development of four or five bed houses. And it was more of creating something that that had some meaning to it. And uh, I think that's pretty, pretty cool, isn't it? You're creating something to last and will be there hopefully when you're not anymore. So there, there is something, um, you know, quite special about that. So yeah. looking at the numbers on it. So, you know, how do you... <clears throat> How do you get, what are you looking at when you're assessing it? Because everyone will look at this similar numbers. They'll go, what, what am I buying the land for? How mm. much is it going to cost the bill? What's it worth at the end? Yeah. And now I always think there's people who miss out, they miss out the other costs. Sure. Cost of finance, you know, conveyancing, all those kind of things as well. And they add up huge, huge amounts of money sometimes. So, you know, have you got a rough rule of thumb that you say, well, you know, this is what I'm looking for in a site? Yeah, I mean, we have, um, if I say it, I've got, I've got to remember all the W's, but we have a broad wing 7W formula, but, but essentially it's, it's um, where we have seven wins and everyone needs to be winning in this scenario. So we all want the best deal. That's what we're looking for. But we've also got to be very practical to the idea we've got to win the deals in the first place. And if someone's in control of the site, there's a whole rift of speaking to people down the pub. In most cases, they don't understand land value. They only take what people tell them. So if a number's given to them, as it would to any of us that don't know any, anything about that particular thing, that's the number we're going to carry and think of. So um, if it's a million pounds and it's only worth 500, it's going to be very difficult to come down from a million to 500. So it's wherever they've got that information from. And, and so there's that part that needs, the win needs to be with the landowner. If they're not feeling like they're winning out of this scenario, and they also need to be, are made aware of the options, which in most cases they won't be aware of. Could you, if your risk profile is um, not particularly risk adverse and you'd be prepared to take a punt, the landowner might want to put their land in and there's a joint venture. If that's the case, they'll get at least 30% more in land value because they're willing to wait for the money and putting the land in as the collateral against the finance, which we're doing too off, by the way. So that definitely works. Um, One's for 10 houses, another one's for eight. So that 100% works, but unless you ask the question and put it forward, then you don't know. Um, in one of those cases, by the way, we had absolutely no idea, but the owner was a multi-multi-multi-millionaire and has decided to not only put his land in, he's also given us all the money for the build um, and uh, taken a, an interest on the debt and the land value is taking a profit share so that's more or less working out a 50-50 split on that with the landowner. So that's wonderful, of course, because we don't have the risk in the project. Clearly, there's no PGEs, there's no bank. But it also brings up other questions, such as where's the money coming from, money laundering. Uh, it brings up other questions that need yeah. to be answered. So, of course, it's not a straight arrow. But, um, yeah, so the land, landowner needs to understand and, and realise uh, there needs to be a win. Um, how we assess it, how does it feel, what can we feel like we can create on there. When I say we, that's me, Ben, Kenny, our architect, you know, there's more of us that are involved in that decision process, not just us. Um, speaking to at least three agents, I've learned that, minimum, you know, um, one's not good enough, mm. you know, it's very easy, we've done two developments, listening just to the uh, agent that's selling it, very easy to hear the numbers that you want to hear. Um, our first project was a, was a it's so uh, easy to um, it's so easy to well actually it's so difficult to assess what these things are going to be worth at the end because quite often you're creating something which it doesn't exist at the moment does it you've got a you know you're not you're not building your kind of red row homes boxes or whatever or your persimmon 
jobs, you know, the stuff you're, you're doing is, is a lot more unique. So how do you, how do you put a price on that? Yeah, it's difficult. I think you can, yeah, yeah. I think it's, you, you've got to have, um, and not everyone wants to do it. You know, not everyone's going to want to get behind stone built houses, although you might really love it. This is not vanilla, you know, this is one exit. This is selling to families. It's not got, not what building, you know, what you're doing some, you know, apartments, or maybe even two or three bed houses. You've got multiple exits. You can rent them out. Of course, investors might buy them first and buy help to buy schemes. But when you're building four or five beds, there's one exit. So that's a very different type of risk profile. Um, but anyway, yeah, so that's really fundamentally for us. We want to make sure that the numbers never lie every single time you know that's something that i've certainly come to realize you can think about creating something new if there's not comparable evidence no matter where and who we speak to the banks won't lend on it so we've got to there's a, we've got to make sure that it's something that the bank will want to get behind because that's essentially what we've got to tick the box is it going to be something sellable to an investor that wants to put the money in to help towards the acquisition of the land if not if that's going to be really difficult with making a job 10 times harder to, 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 to get across. Um, so those are really the fundamental things at the beginning. Then you move on to the non-tangible. What's it like? What are the neighbours like? How does the street feel? All, all of the feeling elements. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm not sure if that answers, but there's... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it is a, it's, it's a difficult thing, isn't it? Because you're trying to compare, you know, apples to oranges, because quite often what you, you're creating doesn't ex exist uh, um, any, anywhere nearby so um in terms of i'm getting so many questions you know <laughs> yeah, I'm, getting, I'm getting loads myself yeah. Sorry, yeah i mean well this is this is the point of it isn't it so um so i'll try and tick them off as i think of them so um but i'll say two now because otherwise i'll forget so um <laughs> I, I wanted to talk to you about finance and the finance side of things because um you know whatever you're doing in development at whatever scale it's the easiest thing in the world to run out of money so uh, we'll, we'll cover that one yeah. um, in, in a second. And the other one was, you mentioned sort of risk a few times, and I'm really interested to, to hear about how you go about mitigating risk in development. So if you're kind of doing subject to planning deals or, or how are you getting comfortable with, yes, I'll get planning on this or, or, or not. So let's yeah. deal with them one at a time. Let's do, let's do, let's do the, the, the risk element in terms of the acquisition, first of all. So yeah. how, do you, how do you manage and mitigate those risks? Well, first and foremost, um, there's three of us that look at these projects. So that was a really important thing. And then we also have our architect that looks at it. So they're the four eyes that, that look at any one project. And we felt that was really important. So if we talk about mine first, so how I would assess risk is I automatically go to the exit. So for me, it's always about the exit first. So what is our out? So are they going to be sellable? Where are they? Who are they going to sell to? So I always go gravitate straight to the agents. What's their feeling on it? Now, in almost all cases, they can do, let's be honest, they want the stock, they want the, they want the stuff, and that's okay. I don't blame them. I'll be exactly the same. You know, and it, we've got a really good understanding of that. So I spent a lot of time trying to understand how, how they fundamentally work. And also, when you start to do development, as, as you are, and many others, I'm sure, that are doing it too, um, once you started to do it, uh, I'm a sponge. So um, if somebody does an interview, I'm, I'm part of my brain is going, I'm really interested in what kind of questions you ask and how you do it. For me, I'm just genuinely interested in how someone does something. And I'm the same with estate agents. And um, I just love that kind of part of the process. I like to understand it. 
So how I kind of assess the exit and how does it feel and initially the numbers. So initially we've got a calculator. A lot of us have our own calculators. It's nothing unique. It's just the way that we work. But it's something on a very, very simple math. Uh, it's more detailed now than what it was three years ago. So you add more, more sheets onto your Excel spreadsheet. That means you go along with these things. Yeah, and then uh, you find a cell isn't working. And, ah! Oh, no, exactly. <laughs> it's formulated. It's like, yeah. I've got a circular reference in D327. <laughs> yeah. Got to yeah. try and find it. But yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm glad to, to hear that you're sharing my pain on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then um, my wife's an accountant, so I'm pleased to say that she's a whiz on on Excel that help. Perfect. Um, so I kind of assess it and then you've got, um, so me, Ben and Kenny, part of Broadbeam particularly, uh, Kenny is a um, stranger, he's, he's a dentist by trade, uh, he's a dentist, a practicing dentist, he had nine dentist practices and sold them all and done very well in life and he owns just under 30 properties over the last, from 1980 he's been buying them, a few of which are in London and he buys plots of land. He was a very clever, very charitable, amazing guy, is Kenny, similar age to me, a few years older. Um, so he's kind of the, uh, the secretary of the business. So he's kind of the individual that has part. So he deals with the cash flow, how's the business operating, the agendas. Um, our, uh, we have um, a conference calls every single week. He makes sure that's okay. And so he assesses it from a pure numbers perspective nothing else does he interest in. Doesn't, he's not interested in what it looks like, how it feels. He just analyzes the numbers and what are the, uh, the alternative options to that. Then you've got Ben, and Ben currently works for well, one of, sort of London and, and Europe's largest building firms. Um, Wembley Stadium, for example, they built that. And, so, and Strange, although he's a director for that company, what Ben wanted to also be involved is, was he wanted to... Um, start up his own development company. So therefore, Broadwing was created. So we all come from, from three different routes. And where Ben comes from, he's a lawyer, he's a solicitor by trade, and he also makes sure that JCT contracts on sometimes up to £400 million developments. So for, for Ben, he always looks for red flags. He's just defaulted to what issues could this cause, who do we need to... Um, what parties do we need to get interested into this? Obviously, Ben's got various different contacts that I would never have, to be fair. So all of us bring different parties. So we assess different sites from a different perspective. We then have Pete that will then assess it for a, for example, it might be a site that has, um, I know it's got, it's got, there's no planning on it. The agent is talking about maybe having 15 or 16 units on it unknown to the agent because they haven't necessarily looked by the way i'm not knocking all agents but this is unfortunately common um or even the landowner either or they'll look at it and say 15 16 units can go on there uh, with no understanding of what the affordable housing structure of that what borough is mm. so our, our architect will look at it and say actually we could build adopt what's called the small development policy which is pretty much you can use that in most parts of the country we've used that several times now you can build up to 10,000 square foot with a new build and up to 10 units that kind of trumps the affordable housing bracket. So it enables you to kind of get round the affordable housing issue. Well, what does 10 houses look like and how, so in effect, you could build 10 three beds or you could build six larger, you know, what do those numbers look like? Yeah, so you're comparing, you know, 16 three beds maybe to 
10 four beds what are the end values and i take out the affordable housing what contributions and what's the difference in the project really so and yeah change the scheme and also if there's an existing building on site you can have that as build credits of course if you knock the building down that's three thousand square foot with the building you've now got thirteen thousand square foot you can build a new build so that's you can start to then really start to utilize your build so that's we look at it from we assess it in three different uh or four different ways how okay. did you decide which did you sort of fall into your roles naturally or did you sit down and decide you're going to do this, you're going to do that, you're going to do this? How did you figure that out? Yeah, initially, you know, initially you'd only got meetings for five minutes and kind of know where we where we fall. It was like an obvious, mm. you know, an obvious channel. Um, yeah. As you, over time, you just cement it. And then of course a share agreement gets created that then you have bullet points that become officially accountable at that stage you can then if one of you are not doing it the other person can pull you up so we wanted to make that official yeah and um, do you have how do you communicate with each other maybe, how do you um, sort of make sure that everybody's on track as it were yeah well we, we have whatsapp uh which we communicate all the time but in terms of officially we have a board meeting once a week and then once every two weeks which is more of a detailed board meeting because we felt that much like myth you know, the, the Michael Gerber book that obviously teaches to take a business serious from day one. Um, think like you're a big global multi-millionaire company. We do that. Um, but to be fair, that a lot of that's come from Ben's experience. And he works for a substantial building company. So we are approaching this like we're already that big. So we felt that that was a way to go. And it makes you think much more seriously. And this is not just playing at it, you know. No, absolutely. Well, you can see, you know, the evolution of the business is it's growing into a big business pretty fast um so then that brings us on to the other sort of question of finance um which i um, you mentioned sort of uh, pg so personal guarantees uh, to, to funds out i always think um you know mainstream lenders banks that they're looking most of them are looking for personal guarantees and i can understand why but at the same time you don't necessarily want you know everything that you've brought up in life over the last x number of years and the other guys you don't want to put that on the line should something completely unforeseen happen in the next project. So I guess this is coming back to, to risk and, and also um, the, the finance side of things. How do you guys deal with, you know, A, raising enough money for projects because the banks will only lend so money, so, yeah. so much. And, and secondly, the kind of personal guarantee side of things because, um, you know, anything can happen, I guess. Yeah. I think from a raising finance, um, I've really come to realise with development, if you come at something that, if I was continually not growing, uh, um, you know, have an evolution about my understanding and people that I'm getting involved into the business and looking at this really seriously and actually being a practitioner in it. I think it, I think a lot of people play at it. They might have tried it for, for a small while. For me, this has been sort of three years in the making and although three years is nothing in development it's nothing it's just touching us you know but it's who you have involved in your team i mean collectively of course i'm sure it's the same with with yourself you know you you don't just say i've got three years worth of experience it's we have years of experience of course you've got an architect that's been doing this for 38 years and yeah so you you get there's great leverage within this industry uh, and the great thing also is so interesting thing on funding there are so many ways to fund. And some people say, for example, I'll put all of the money in. And for that, for example, there might be a developer. So they're an existing developer that they've been working with, they've been doing this for say 15 or 20 years. 
and there's an alliance there's an alliance with how we approach and what we're doing and and they, they want to find the projects it's all about don't forget we spend well i spend i don't know 40 50 60 hours a week assessing sites continually so that's as well as the other tasks that come abroad in land resi but but essentially that's what my 70 percent of my time is spent doing so if we can encourage another developer or call it developer stroke business partner into the project what we're we now doing we're now leveraging their experience because of course they've done this 10 times where well, we haven't yes we make less money but we've got less risk but we've also been able to grow with education and knowledge from that partnership so for us we felt that a way to grow and interesting that moves on to risk to answer that question is your risk can can um your risk changes not all of them have to have personal guarantees if you then split it between you three plus a fourth so although it might be 20 percent personal guarantees of say four million or five million in monies well that split between four of you it's not quite so onerous so i think sometimes you can start to reduce your your personal guarantee mm. of course the more experience you become and the more competitive the market is currently with, with development finance you've only got to go on linkedin and say i need finance for and you get inundated with brokers so nowadays who knows how long this will be here for by the way so it's make hay i guess but it's never been so competitive so there is ways of, of reducing personal guarantees too um, your interest rate's not quite so good but i suppose you've got to outweigh one with the other um, yeah and is um a slightly more generic question really is this now what you thought it was going to be like because I always think it's um you know when when we we spoke last you were kind of you know busy on the kind of rent to rent stuff and HMO portfolio and and you kind of built that but then it wasn't I guess necessarily what you had hoped it would be when you got there um so how are you finding this sort of move the development into development is this what you imagined the business would be would be like yeah that's a really good question um that's yeah i probably never no, it is a good one isn't it <laughs> <laughs> um that one is a cracker um i think from a no is the question is the answer i think it's straight off the bat um for me the decision for going into property development was not only a strategy decision but it was more from a um my life coach at the time said what I remember, I remember a distinct question was asked. I was on like a, like a boardroom environment. There's like 15 of us around the table and, and Dylan turned around and said, so why are you all doing what you're doing? And there's various different life coaches or nurses and doctors and all various different kind of people doing what they do for a living. And they said, Carl, why do you want to be a property developer? That was the question. And I sat there and I said, because I want to be the best property developer in the region. And I kind of looked around and it was like flat. Like no one even like looked at me like, what answer is that? What region? Region? And, I, and even then I've kind of like, I've gone, you're like, that was crap. What kind of answer is that? It meant nothing. It didn't come from anywhere. It's like a nothing. And I kind of, and I kind of went and he goes, we'll come back to that, Carl. So this went on for like two days, by the way. And he came back two days later and asked the same question. And he said, so why do you want to be, why do you want in property development? And my answer was, I love people. That was my, came from here, that was my answer. So I thought, right, well, let's identify that with property development. So I just love everything about people, I love bringing people together, I communicate, I love sharing, I love learning and sharing and educating, making differences. So of course, I know a lot of us do say that, 
but it's I genuinely that's what gets me up and gets me going. That and I love business and I love being inspired and inspiring. So if you live in that life all the time, development was an obvious choice. So it was more that than it was property development is the thing. If that kind of makes sense, it was I had to bridge the difference. And if I couldn't bridge the difference, I was going to fail and stop at doing it. And uh, that's what that's what kind of helped. So how does it differ from what you imagined it was going to be like? Now you're here, now you're doing it, you know, that's the day job. Um, what, yeah. What's, uh, you know, and the grass is always greener. We know that. We know the grass is always greener, no, no matter what you're doing. But how is, how does it differ from what you, I guess, the day-to-day of what you anticipated you'd be doing? Yeah, everything takes longer, everything costs more money, and you've got to have so much more patience than... I'm patient anyway, but you've got to have just unforeseen amounts of patience. And development is one of those things. Now, I mean, patience, not just for planning and surveys and issues and problems and landowners. It's also with investors and lawyers and legal costs and contracts and the business itself and the structure and the whole, the list goes on and on and on. And um, that was the part that I probably wasn't prepared for. But then you have to fall in love with those elements because if you don't, I kind of wouldn't, I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy. You know, genuinely, if you don't love those parts and you don't want to cut through it, you I, know, I, I heard this. Um, I heard this really good podcast a couple of years ago, maybe a year or so ago, um, and I can't remember the guy's name now. But he used to host um, a program called uh, uh, a TV show in the states called Dirty Jobs. It was the kind of jobs. Mike Rowe, I think his name is, and he. he it was the jobs that most people just really wouldn't ever want to do. And he said that nobody starts out in life wanting to empty septic tanks for a living. That's just <laughs> not what you want to do. But, you know, you do it for a bit and then you take someone else on and they're doing it. And then, you, you know, after a year or two, you've got like 10 trucks going, you've got people working from you. And suddenly you love the business. You love what you're doing. You fall in love with the job. No one starts out wanting to empty septic tanks. And I thought, he was really good. He's such a cool guy. You'll have to listen to it. That's my recommendation. I'll send you the link. Yeah, and, I'll Google it now. I'll Google it now whilst we're sort of, you know, whilst I'm also filling you know, airspace yeah. or whatever. But um, yeah, so he was, he was being interviewed on the um, Tim, Tim Ferriss um, podcast because Tim oh, Ferriss yeah, yeah, yeah. just really interesting people. Um, and this guy's name was, let me see if I can find it. Mike, Mike Rowe, R-O-W-E. Um, yeah, he's a really cool guy. Yeah, I just think with, um, yeah, I just think with, with property development, um, yeah, you've just, got, you've just got to really, you've got to, it's not about how much money you're making because the money will follow. It's, that's, that's kind of inevitable as long as you have all the right elements to it. But I think you've got to want to create a long, sustainable business. For, for me at least anyway for me i wanted a 10 15 year, year old business i wanted to uh, i wanted to have staff resources i wanted to be able to not have to be involved in it for it to be able to make money i wanted us to pretend to have a sellable business to sell on to a bigger building firm you know i wanted us to have all of those options so that was fundamentally these all was creating the decisions as to which direction that was right for us but there's so many people that don't want to do it that's perfectly cool where they want to do one development a year and there's nothing absolutely nothing wrong with that whatsoever. I make very good money, 
um, and see how that goes and see whether that's something that they want to crack on with. I think that's probably a sensible thing to do. Um, and anyone that wants to get into it from the beginning, I think a really good way is to do what I did initially, is to work with someone and find something and get involved. I think that's a really good way of doing it. The best course you'll ever have. I mean, I always, I, one of the things I've always been really interested in is you, you've always, you know, from, from when we first met, you've, you've kind of been paid to train in many ways, haven't you? You know, you've kind of learned on the job. Um, which, you know, it, it, I think that's a really smart way of doing it, you know, that you cutting your teeth, but also doing the job at the same time without it being too much risk up front. I was, I was kind of admired that. Yeah, I, I think that the, um, and it's also okay to understand your value. You know, sometimes when you start off, it's very easy to go and use even words such as, I'm not yeah yet, I'm not that experienced, but I want to get into development. You can, you know, I used to say those things at a networking event and you hear other people, people say it. You've immediately gone, one, you're not going to get paid very much. And then number two, you're going to get taken advantage of. And you kind of almost saying, you kind of want to play it. But you're not really, you know, putting your arms out and sort of uh, putting your chest out and putting your shoulders back. You're not really necessarily portraying someone that's going to be a practitioner in this. And for me, that was what my life coach was dealing with. You know, it's not coming across in an arrogant or, or um, it's, uh, for me, it was just thinking much, much bigger and understanding, do you know what? Yes, I've not done development, but I'm very good at communicating. Mm. I'm very good at understanding people and very good at getting, you know, getting results from people. So if that's my value, how can I make that profitable? And I think then sometimes that was what, what got me over the line initially. Um, yeah. 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 Well, particularly what? when the times get tough. So, I was, I was going to. Sorry, hang on. Very. She's keeping score as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. You can go. You can no. go. No, I don't now. <laughs> well, I was going to say, what advice would you offer for somebody who? was where you were three years ago somebody who's doing dtl or rent to rent or whatever and they're just sort of looking to go into development but they're not entirely sure what's the best step for them what advice would you give well i'd say the first the first bit of advice i'd give is um do you want to be in property for a vacation or do you want to be in it as an investment tool so for me, that was a fundamental shift. I think buy to let is you can put your money in, you can have them, you can do your own refurbs perhaps or get somebody else to do it, but you're doing your thing, whatever that thing is, whatever your job is or contractor or, or whatever your passion is, whatever that is. Um, but to transition from that to a vocation where this is all you want to do, that's, I would say, is probably the biggest thing to answer because if that's the case, then you've got to go all in. Development is not something you can perhaps play at or try out this is something you've got to fully understand because there are so many components and those components are new almost every development there's something new on every side and uh, a term you've never heard of okay over time i'm sure 15 20 years you know um this stuff is going to be much more you know you'd heard it 10 times over i get it but certainly at the beginning um and i'm calling myself well at the beginning no different i'm only three years in which is not very far but um that's probably my best advice, I would say, if you want it to be your vocation. And um, for me, I didn't want to be distracted by any other strategy. So for me, vocation is property development. I'm not in property. 
you know, a lot of people sort of say there are so many spokes off, which I totally get. For, for, but for us, we make cash flow and have a, and we've done it several times now, so we're now taking it to market, but land resi, where it finds, assesses and has them packaged correctly off to a, off to a developer. So that becomes, in effect, our cash flow business. But it's still property development, do you see what I mean? So for, for us, we're not being distracted by another strategy. We might invest in other strategies, but that's not our vocation. Yeah, yeah. okay, that's really good advice. And I want to ask one question I, I, I always like to ask, particularly when people are kind of in similar situations to me, you know, we've got like family man, you've got young kids or whatever. How do you juggle work and life? Uh, because I always feel like I'm doing each element of it, not that well. <laughs> <laughs> me and you both, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. so, uh, yeah, I think it's a difficult one to answer, but, uh, and initially, there's something I really want to say actually as well. Um, for any entrepreneur that wants to go into doing something like this as well, my wife is an architect. She's a beautiful woman, my wife, and got two beautiful young children. Uh, Scarlett, she's five in June, and, and Ella Rose, she's eight, well, coming up to eight months. So you can imagine there's a lot of daddy time that's required. So I totally get it, you know, and so you should. But when you're trying to build something and you genuinely have a passion, it's difficult to dissect. I think when you've just got a job, you've got a job, who cares? You do it, you come home, you want to get home. You've got a real definitive time. You've got that's work and that, that's your weekend time. But of course, you become your own thing. That can get very blurred. And it's very easy to be on the beach and look at your phone because, of course, there's some important things you want to get on with. Um, and initially, when you first start, it's kind of what we need to get out is that your wife or husband or partner or, or you know, whatever, um, probably ain't going to be as excited as you are when you first start. And there's every, they've got every right to be. It's not their thing. It's not their passion. And I was coming home going, I found this site. I reckon I could get nine hours on that. And she's literally coming out, I just want my husband home. I don't really care. And Scarlett wants daddy to play cards. And, and they're not really bothered. So, of course, that caused initially a lot of frustration. And I don't think I'm alone with that. I think it's, 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 uh, it's, a, it's an important thing to, to talk about. And, and at the time, my life coach um, would say things such as, well, if it carries on, now it's, okay, it's something small, but over time, of course, this will, you'll go further and further apart. So there's other elements of certainty that I think you can help with. Okay, I couldn't give certainty on, is this going to work or not? I couldn't give certainty to say how much money is going to come in by when. But what I could give certainty to would be home at six, because I said I'd be home at six. And of course, you start to, as a partnership, I think you can apply certainty where it's required. And I think that can, that can help. I, I do. I, I find really similar things. So I do a couple of things. I absolutely take the kids to two or three of their classes, their evening things that they do yeah. every week. And I don't care how important the work thing is. It's someone's trying to schedule for that night. I won't do it. So, you know tonight we're recording this on a Tuesday and I take my son and my daughter, I've got twins and I take them to, they do um, gymnastics for an hour and trampolining for an hour. So I take them to that. Yeah. And I, I, um, I take them there and I train in the gym while they're doing it. So, they, so I train for half an hour and I watch the half an hour of gymnastics. 
I train for half an hour and I watch half an hour trampoline. And I think I've done, you know, I've kind of used my time smart there a little bit. I make sure I watch them do those half, half an hour as well. Yeah. And then the other thing I do is I try and go on some nice holidays. And I know, and they've all got to accept that sometimes dad's going to be on the phone on it. Yeah. But we are, we are there. And it's bloody difficult, isn't it? But I know I always like to do, I think, you know, it sounds like you're dealing with it in a very similar way. Uh, I, I think you just have to navigate through it. And, but, but what's, but there comes a time where you get your meals. I, I refer it to the Rocky and, you know, you know uh, Adria, you know, she's laying in the bed and she goes, fight, fight. And of course, when she's really in bed, if any of us remember that Rocky, the first Rocky movie, that kind of Adrian Rocky go fight moment, which is, I believe in you now. That's, mm. And I had that a few, about eight or 18 months ago. And, uh, you know, you never forget that. It's, you come from a place where she feels uncertain and nervous and scared and, and uh, or your partner will, and they shift to, okay, you're proving it, you're living it, you're showing us it, you know, you, and, and it's an amazing shift. But that obviously takes a lot of, um, yeah, it's not easy for sure, but it's, it's all worth it, you know, it's... Uh, no, I can see by the smile it is what it's worth. Yeah, your voice, absolutely. So, I guess this kind of brings us to the end of this. Um, uh, uh, this, I've, this I've got one. I've got one more, if I may. <laughs> of course you have. Of course she has. <laughs> What's next for you? Oh yeah. <laughs> is that way approved. Yeah, no, no. Um, what's next? So growth, growth and scale for sure. You know, for us, it's. Uh, you know, this, this creating kit still build uh, land resi, get it out. We've just taken on some really cool resources for that. Uh, Broadwing, we want to get the development up and built. Uh, that's a really important next 12 to 24 months for us. Um, and uh, yeah, so scaling resources and growth, that's for us and to, to get it all, you know, get it all nutting down and, and, and um, get some important resources on because we know that that's fundamentally the, how we're going to, how we're going to have some stability as a business as we go. Good, yeah. Fantastic. Well, uh, <laughs> let's, let's, let's not leave it another three or four years. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's way too long. So it's been an absolute pleasure sort of catching up with you again. And Haribol, of course, liaise with you for all the bits and pieces that we get, um, case studies and all the pictures and all the numbers. We tend not to do it in today because it's today's a bit more about, you know, chatting about the kind of journey and stuff like that. But we'll get all of those bits and pieces into um, the article. And it's been an utter pleasure sort of catching up with you again. Yeah, same. Thank you so much. It's been brilliant. Yeah. Hope I've been some form of value. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. Don't forget you can go to yourpropertynetwork.co.uk forward slash stuff. You can download the article that we create from the podcast so you can see all of the case study pictures, all the uh, financials um, and a bit more information uh, in there as well. And there's loads of other useful things to download uh, on that web page as well. And don't forget to rate, comment and subscribe to our podcast.